We're calling it the Sexy Sermon Series. We are talking about sex in church. Some of you are very excited to have this conversation. Some of you, like with your parents, if they ever had a conversation with you, are like, hey, I'm talking about this here. Why are we talking about this? Um, I want to, as, as we jump into this series, uh, I do want to give you some resources, and I will make these available too on our website, so you can see some of the material where I'm getting, uh, some of the teaching, as well as good resources for further reading. There's a book by Real Sex. Um, uh, it's called Real Sex. It's by Lauren Winner. There's uh, some uh, some audio content by a guy named Peter Kreeft, and there's also some material uh, from John Piper uh, that's called Sex and the Supremacy of God. Great materials that we want you to uh, take a look at. There are two reasons why we're looking at this subject in our church over the next four weeks. You know, the first reason is that we're a people who, on the one hand, think about sex all the time, and on the other hand, don't think about sex really enough. What do I mean by that? We're, of course we're people who think about sex all the time. I mean, you know, um, 40 years ago, when Volkswagen was selling their first Beetle, the first Beetle came out, they came up with this ad. And this ad was all text. And they had, in this ad, it was all the reasons why the, the Beetle was mechanically more, you know, mechanically superior to all other cars on the market. It had the best gas mileage, why it made the most sense. And all those reasons were true. But Volkswagen sales went through the, through the floor that year. Nobody bought Beetles that year. And then the next year they caught on and they put a, an ad with the girls in bikinis and the sales tripled. Not a big surprise to any of us, right? You know, we think about sex all the time. And yet I would tell you that we also really don't think about sex enough. So about 10, 12 years ago, when Seinfeld was in its heyday... Seinfeld had an episode called This, That, and the Other. And Jerry and Elaine in this episode um, decide to be more than friends. They're going to be friends with benefits. They're going to have uh, casual sex. And they decide this is not going to affect our relationship. We could do that or not do that. And we're fine. Some of you remember this episode, right? You know, and the, it's, they sort of bought into this idea, which is cult, culturally, this is like what we, this is soup du jour. That what we do with our bodies doesn't matter, doesn't affect us in a deep and personal way. We don't think about sex enough. And some of you, particularly if you've grown up in the church, haven't had a whole lot of really helpful, constructive thinking or teaching about this. Because this is the kind of message that you get sometimes in the church. Sex is dirty, save it for the one you love. Right? That's the kind of message. Some of you have gotten the, because I told you so. Because God says so answers to even his version. Like, like what does God say about sexual morality and ethics? And, and, you know, just as because I said so is frustrating for children, it is likewise frustrating for adults. And some of us, just we haven't thought about this enough. The other reason... The second reason why we're doing a short series on sexuality is because the elders have asked me to do so. We've looked at our church and said, Liberty, time out. We've got a problem. You know, one of the things that we, we've noticed, we've watched, as, we, as those who are called to shepherd this community, is to say that con- confusion about sexuality, abuses of ourselves, abuses of one another... These, these things are not just isolated incidents within our community, but we're a community that has some sexual problems. 
We're a community that has some things that need to be addressed as an entire community together. You know, we've looked at this and said, you know, um, the struggle. some of us struggle deeply with sexual sin. Some of us don't struggle enough with sexual sin. We looked at this and said, you know, some of it we, we've bought into as a culture, and maybe within our church as well, kind of the Bill Clinton statement on, like, sex is just sexual intercourse. Anything else I do is kind of fair play. You know, our conviction as a group of elders is that a community, a Christian community that doesn't talk about our sexuality, ends up forcing that conversation, you know, into secrecy. We end up, because we don't talk about it, we send the issue underground. And so some of you are apathetic. Some of you are deeply wounded. Some of you are deeply, you know, guilty on a regular basis. And you have no outlet to talk about this. This is kind of a taboo subject for us. And one of our goals within this series is to say, we need to have a conversation together. We need to make this a community concern. We need one another's help. So this is why we're looking at this. You know, over the next four weeks, I'll do some of the teaching. We've also invited in some folks from Harvest USA, some good friends of ours who um, have been... Basically, the the ministry of Harvest USA is to help folks who are wrestling with sexual issues. And they're sort of the specialists that we're bringing in for part of this series. Um, But we're going to be talking in this series about sexual wounds. Some of you have wounds that need healing. We're going to be talking about homosexuality. We're going to be talking about how we live as sexual people in a community together and how we love one another and how we honor God with our bodies. You know, and today I want to start, I want to lay a foundation with the, for this whole series by looking at this, this a theology of sexuality. And the title of the sermon is A God with Sex on the Brain. And I want to start off with this book that we, we heard both in that short video clip as well as we've read this morning from Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon, or as it's often called Song of Songs, is the erotic poetry book of the Old Testament. There's really no other way to describe this book in the Old Testament. You know, it's erotic poetry. And because of that, Christians and Jews for centuries have not known what to do with this book. You know, um, a lot of Jewish rabbis uh, said, This book is not intended for anyone under the age of 30. You should not read this book because of the vivid imagery. It's too much. You know, um, and Christians likewise have struggled. Conservative Christians, a lot of them have said, oh, this has got to be an allegory for the relationship between God and his people. And therefore, we'll just read it as such. And then, you know, but what it does is it creeps everybody out because it's like that and we don't read the book. <laughs> so, you know, at a, at a conference this fall, I saw this video clip and it's put on by Family Radio. And they went to, I'm sorry I didn't introduce this very well, but they went to college campuses and they interviewed students and they, they basically said, we want you to read this little section from Song of Solomon, the section we read today from chapter 7. We want you to tell us what it means and where it's from. And you, you know, the reactions are very telling. They're like, I like it. I like this. What is it? You know, where is this from? And their responses were from Shakespeare or Greek mythology. They're like, and you know, it never crosses people's mind that this could be in Scripture because we don't think of God and sex in the same sentence. We don't put God and sex in the same sentence. You know, the Song of Solomon says differently though. This little book says, God 
cares about sexuality. He designed it. It wasn't an oops. It wasn't an afterthought. And he thinks it is something beautiful. He thinks it's something worth celebrating. And therefore, it's something that we as a Christian community should be able to say, we need to read this. We need to know what this says. We need to hear what God says, what his theology of sexuality is. And so we're going to look at this today at four points. First, God made us sexual beings. Now, that's not a surprise to any of us that we're sexual beings. Nobody here is like newsflash for this morning. But the fact that God designed us as such, God intentionally designed us as sexual beings, it's actually news to us. It's actually news to us. You know, because it tells us that you're not a... You, you don't, you're not a spiritual being who happens to have sex organs. You are a sexual spiritual being. And this is where we're going with this. Sex, therefore, is not something that you do. It's who you are. A hundred years ago, when we talked about people, you never used the word gender. Gender was for grammar. It was for nouns. People had a sex. And that sex was either male or female. And it was only in the 1960s, during the sexual revolution, when we began to say, you know what, we want to separate what we do from who we are, that we began to change the language. So at the Vietnam War, there was a draft form, and the, the male inductees to the, to the army would write in, it said a little box for sex, and you're supposed to write in male. They would write in, yes please, or occasionally, yes. What, what were they saying? Sex is not... Who I am, it's what I do. It's what I do. You know, um, see, we had to do that because sex, we wanted to, as a culture, say, we want to separate who I am from what I do with my body. There was violence done to our humanity in doing so because God did not create us that way. God did not create us. You know, we, He didn't separate our organs from our souls in that way. You know, we are not spiritual bodies who do sex. Think about this. This this Song of Solomon, this book is a theology book. It's a spiritual book. You know, it's it tells us what God thinks about our bodies, about our sex organs. It's and you know, this is what we see. We are sexual spiritual beings. We are sexual spiritual beings. We're not animals and we're not angels. So here are the two messages that you've heard. In the church you've heard, you're supposed to be like angels, kind of disembodied spirits. We don't really talk about our sexuality. Or you hear from the culture, you're a bunch of animals. Just try to make sure your animal instincts don't destroy you. But the truth is, we're not angels and we're not animals. When God created us in Genesis, we read about this. God goes through the whole creation account and says, Good, 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 good. And he comes to people and he says, What? Very good. He doesn't say, Very good, except for those organs that I don't want to talk about. I'm kind of embarrassed at that part. No, God created us as sexual beings, and that is part of the very good. We are the pinnacle of creation. We're the very height of creation. You know, you read this. Look, Song of Solomon, chapter 7. Look at the language that's in here. God doesn't blush in saying things like this. Look, he says, you know, let's go to the early, early to the vineyards where the grapes have blossomed. I will give you my love. The mandrakes show forth. Beside all our doors are choice fruits. 
you know, he talks about climbing her tree. This is explicit erotic poetry. And God doesn't blush. We're created, and this is a very good part of how God designed us. Listen to one writer. He says this, Christians have no right to be embarrassed when it comes to thinking about sex and sexuality. An unhealthy reticence or embarrassment in dealing with these issues is a form of disrespect to God's creation. Whatever God made is good, and every good thing God made has an intended purpose that ultimately reveals His own glory. When conservative Christians respond to sex with ambivalence or embarrassment, we slander the goodness of God. We hide God's glory, which is intended to be revealed in the right use of all His gifts. Do you understand why this matters so much? This is very instructive for us people. Sex is not what we do. It's who we are. This, the Bible shows us you're, you're, you're not a soul in a container. You know, when Jesus died and was raised again, he didn't come back as like some kind of light form. Jesus in his resurrected body, in his resurrected glorified body, shows up in a room with organs, with physicality. People touch him. He eats something in front of them. Physicality doesn't disappear in eternity. It's perfected. Which shows us, look, God delights in our physical being. God delights in this. If you're not a spirit, if you're not just a spirit and a wrapper that God's going to wad up and throw away at the end of time, then what you do with your body matters intensely. It matters greatly because it's not me and not me. It's all me. It's all you. You know, you can't separate body and soul. There's only one case where soul and body are separated. What is that? When are soul and body separated? Come on, you guys are awake this morning. Death, right. right? And you go to a funeral, and you, people, you go to an open casket funeral, and you see the body lying there, and people say, he looks so natural. And you go, no, he doesn't. That looks weird. A soul is supposed to be in a body. And actually, that is weird. We see in eternity, God will make that back together. We will be people with bodies. And I would tell you, all of it. Every bit of it. You know, to treat your sexuality as something that only your body does is to do something that feels un- as unnatural as death to you. This is why when you break up with someone that you've been physically intimate with, doesn't it feel like death? Don't you feel like part of you has been ripped apart? Listen, this is why sexual wounds hurt so badly. You know, if you buy the cultural line that sex is what you do, not who you are, then you're going to treat sexuality, you're going to treat your sex life as a Nerf gun. And you're like, it doesn't matter. I can shoot it anywhere. It doesn't really hurt anybody, right? But some of you have deep soul wounds that hurt like a bazooka. Like you've been blown up. And there's part of your soul that feels like it's continually got shrapnel in it and that you move the wrong way and it continues to cut you. See, that just tells us something. It tells us, look, you can't separate these things. You know, 
These sexual wounds tell us that these scars run deep because they are. We are a whole. We are an integrated person. You know, I must, I must never find a kindred spirit in Hollywood. But I love this quote. Cameron Diaz's character in uh, Vanilla Sky says this. When you sleep with somebody, your body makes a promise, whether you do or not. You know, she's on to... Her, that character's line right there says so much. It says this. You can't separate your body from your soul. This is why also you can't split hairs... We like to do this in taking on kind of the Bill Clinton definition of, of sexuality. You know, um, so I'm not going to make a political statement about this, but Bill Clinton several years ago in the Monica Lewinsky scandal, remember this? It's been a while. But remember, there was the question of what is, is. You know, he's saying, I did not have sex with that woman, but there's no separation. There's like, we want to say sexual intercourse is one thing, being sexual is something else. And the Bible's like, are you crazy? Everything you do with your body matters. You can't divide it. You can't dissect yourself. You can't put yourself in little compartments like that. It doesn't work that way. So first, look, God create us, created us as sexual beings. Second, what do we hear here? That sex is for other serving pleasure. Sex is for other serving pleasure. You know what I loved about watching this little clip from fam- the, 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 these students reading this is that some of them look, they almost blush. You see them embarrassed. And as many love scenes as we have seen in movies, I will tell you as a, as a pastor, when I do weddings and a couple comes forward and they stand in front of me and I say the words, you may now kiss the bride, I, I watch for a second but I have to look away. There's something that's so intimate There's something that's so passionate and right about that moment that even though I've seen too many movies, I still blush. God doesn't blush in talking about these things. These words are written explicitly in Scripture. You know, and He he wants this written down because God doesn't just think that sex is for making babies. You don't read anything in here. There's no like, hey, when you get pregnant, we're going to buy an ap- we're going to get an apartment, and it'll be great, and we'll have lots of them. There's nothing in this. There's, it's it's a it's all about pleasure. God creates sexuality, and we see a celebration of that in here for other serving pleasure. Listen to the beauty of the words by which it, this, these two people describe one another, the longing that they have. It's a beautiful piece of poetry. And it's because it's for pleasure. You know, a lot of times people think of God as puritanical. That some, you know, God is out there, He's like, somewhere, somehow, someone is having fun, and I'm going to put a stop to it. And, you know, I feel bad for the Puritans, because the Puritans get a bad rap. They were actually people who prized sexuality. I love it. You can go back and read Puritan history in Massachusetts. There was a guy who was disciplined by his church for not having enough sex with his wife. These are not prudish people, and God is not a prudish God. You know, when when we were talking with our kids about sexuality, we do this every summer, we talk with our kids about sexuality, and I remember having this conversation many years ago, uh, and and we're talking, and it's like the first conversation with one of our guys, and we're like, you know, get through the hole, like, here's what happens, and he's like, I have to do that? And we're like, well, you might you want to do that. And he's like, I'm never going to want to do that. And that's sort of what we think that God is like. You know, hey, the Bradfords must have done this like six times. They have six kids. That's what God's into. 
You know, it's just for making babies. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, it's a conversation between two demons, right? It's a fictional story, okay? But it's a conversation between two demons, Screwtape and Wormwood. And Screwtape is the older guy, he's like coaching Wormwood, and he's talking about how much he can't stand what God is like. He's like and this is what he says, you know, he says, God is a hedonist at heart. What is a hedonist? Someone who loves pleasure. God is a hedonist at heart. He makes no secret in it, of it. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. He's vulgar, Wormwood. He's a, he has a bourgeois mind. He's filled this world with pleasures. You know, why is that so hard for us to believe? Because, you know, we have distorted what God's gifts are supposed to be for. This gift, this gift as we read here in Song of Solomon chapter 7 is no monologue. As you read this, this passage, it's kind of hard to see the way it was printed up on the screen, the bulletin, but it's actually a conversation. Verses 1 through the first part of verse 9 are the woman speaking, and then verse 9 through 13 are the man speaking. And this whole book is a dialogue between two lovers. Look what that tells us. Sex is not for self. Sex is for other-serving pleasure. Other-serving pleasure. You know, and all perversions of sexuality are rooted in this. When sex becomes about me and my happiness. Me and my fun. You know, I, when I, I talk to a lot of young men who are about to get married. And I'm like, you want to have a great sex life? You want to have a great sex life in your marriage? Here's the secret. Don't think about you. Don't think about satisfying yourself. Think about serving and satisfying and pleasing your wife. And you will have a great sex life. Because that's what sex is intended for. It's not intended for self-focus. It's intended for serving other. You know, the people who know the least about the pleasures of sex are those who are addicted to it. It's like alcohol. You know, alcohol, the Bible tells us, is for making glad the heart. But an alcoholic, one who desires alcohol more and more and more and uses it more and more and more, finds an ever-increasing desire, finding an ever-diminishing pleasure. Because what is intended for gladdening the heart becomes something that makes sad the heart. And those who, honestly, are, are addicted to sexuality in a variety, in any form, are those who've made it about self. And therefore, like... The pursuit of sexuality becomes an ever-increasing desire for an ever-diminishing pleasure. You know, let me drive this home. Do you want to know why some of us feel so dead and so empty? Do you want to know why? Because we've taken a gift that's meant to be for other serving. And we've made it about self. This is why masturbation is messed up. It's sex, by definition, with self. You know, it's... It's unfulfilling. It's empty. Because it's a gift that's meant to be designed for use to care for and serve and love and beautify another. This is why there are couples, and many of you know this, within your own marriages, where sexuality becomes something that is is not love-making. It feels like love-stealing. Because when sex, even within a committed marriage, is about pleasing self... Both partners know it. And it becomes sick. It becomes broken. God wants to heal this. See, 
Sex is for others serving pleasure. Sex is something that God has designed us. He's made us part of our design. He's not ashamed of it. And third, sex was made with a context. And we learn the, you know, what it is for from the context. You know, the last 50 years of the sexual revolution have all been about pulling out a big knife and trying to cut sexuality away from the dock of marriage. Cut it from its moorings. Let it be free. Let love be free. And, you know, almost everybody knows the sexual ethics of the Bible. I bet I could ask around, and everybody in this room, if I said, what are the sexual ethics? What does God think? What's the right context? Everybody would say, I know, between a husband and a wife and a committed marriage, right? Exclusive. That's it. And yet, you know, if I asked you, why? Most of you would still have the because he says so answer. You know, and... You know, because of that, we as a culture have taken sexuality and we've, we've done a couple things with it. One, if we've divorced it, we've said, you know, we've divorced our bodies from our souls. Number two, we've said it's for self-pleasure. And three, then we put it in whatever context seems to feel good or fit for us. You know, and the problem is that it doesn't work right in other contexts. If you take sexuality as God designed it and take it to a machine shop and kind of retrofit it to try to kind of fit in another context, you find that it doesn't work. It's like taking a fork and saying, I'm going to use this for a piston for my car. I can take it to a machine shop. I can try to make it look like a, like a piston. I can put it in my engine, but I'm going to break down. And that's what we've seen in our culture with sexuality. We take it out of its context... And it begins to break down. I want, to, I want to look with you three contexts in our culture that we've tried to make sex work in. And I want to show you why they don't, it doesn't work, why it breaks down. First is this, pornography. Pornography teaches you that bo- real bodies aren't good enough. That real bodies aren't good enough. Some of you know, have seen this ad for, a couple years ago. Dove uh, that makes all kinds of soaps and stuff, uh, cleansing products. Anyway, Dove comes out with this commercial. And it's a great commercial because they take an ordinary person, a real woman, who actually exists, and they show you how an advertising company or a pornography industry makes her into look like a sex goddess. And it's fascinating. You can watch this on YouTube. It's like, what, a minute and a half, something like that? And it's like, it plays really fast, and they show how they like carve out her neck, they elongate her features, they change her face around, and suddenly, and what does it show us? What does pornography show us? It's, it's idealized bodies. It tells us that real bodies aren't good enough. That's one context. You know, another context, masturbation, as I spoke about a minute ago, it tells us that sex can happen outside of a relationship. You know, sexuality, I'm sorry, sex takes work with people. You know, it takes a little romantic talk. It takes a like, you know, really being nice, kind. You know, you guys get the, you know. But, you know... Masturbation tells us no, it's immediate. It doesn't have to happen in a relationship. You know, it, it, it tells you that sex happens outside of having to relate to another person. And premarital sex tells you that sex is simple. Hey, there's no strings attached. We can do this or we cannot do this. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't really affect me. You know, the casual friends with benefits that is common within our culture, you could never read these words from Song of Psalm 7 to one another. You might be able to read a couple of them, but you could never say, as it says here, I belong to my beloved and his desire is for me. 
I mean, what, those are words of not just intimacy, but deep trust. Those are words of deep trust. It's a language of commitment, of security, of confident intimacy, of unblushing delight in the other. Let me speak to a moment uh, for a moment to the because I said so issue. You know, I know it's not popular for me to stand up in front of you and say, yeah, there really is a right and wrong. And when God says, because I said so, he actually knows what he's talking about. But can I remind you of this? As a father with children, sometimes I say, because I said so, and I don't always have time to give the explanation. And yet, why do I give those words to my children? Because I love them, and I do not want them to be hurt. And there's sort of this... um, let's call it an anti-authoritarian bent within our culture that says, unless I know exactly why all the time, why God says what he says, I'm not going to do it unless I'm on board. See, there's a, there's a presupposition behind that. It says, you know, I'm not going to let God be God unless I'm fully on board with everything and understand everything he says. And not everything that God says is always clear. And yet... Trusting God knows what's best for me. He designed me. He even designed these parts of my body. I think He knows how best to use them. It's a certain amount of faith and submission of ourselves to God in that. Another bad word within our culture. I know. Submitting ourselves. You know, it doesn't reveal a problem with God. It reveals a problem with us. But let me give you, on the other hand, I will give you an explanation of why, because He says so. You know... Why? God designed sex because, for a context, for a specific context, because it is too beautiful, too life-giving, and too powerful to be allowed to kind of run free. You know, it's like a river. Within its banks, it is beautiful, it's pleasant, it provides pleasure, it's life-giving. One writer, Justin Taylor, says this, The pleasures and goodness of sex are heightened, not lessened, by proper restraint in the same way that the Colorado River is made more powerful by the walls of the Grand Canyon. The very narrowness of the river's channel makes for a greater river. Farther south, as the river flows through the deserts of California and Arizona, it's shallow, wide, it even smells bad in spots. Wider boundaries diminish the river. Sharper, stronger, narrow boundaries strengthen it. Less is more. The boundaries and prescriptions of sex in the Bible are for the sake of sex, not for the diminishing of it. But watch the news this spring. Watch the news coming from Iowa or the Dakotas. Or look back at the, the... Replay some of the stuff from Hurricane Katrina. Water, when it overflows the banks, when it overtakes the levee, is destructive. It's uncontrollable. You know, it's, it's dangerous to us. You know, outside the banks that God has prescribed, sexuality is dangerous. It is not life-giving, it's life-threatening. Let me drive this home. Look, if you want to injure someone, the best way to do so is to be sexually involved with them outside a covenant of marriage. If you really want to hurt somebody, that's the best way to do it. You know... You're splitting soul and body. And if you're not prepared to come and stand in front of me and wear a tux or a gown, you know, the Bible's admonition is, don't mess with this. Careful. High voltage. Destructive. This is true for people who are dating or engaged, too. 
You know, I, I know people who will say, look, look, we're intending, we're on our way toward a committed covenant partnership. This isn't, surely this is not destructive here, because I intend on marrying this woman. I intend on giving my life to be with this person. And I would tell you still that a fruit picked before it's ripe, ripe will turn the stomach. You know, a intention to have a covenant is not the same thing as having one. Imagine if I'm going to buy a house and I say, okay, here I am, I'm going with my realtor, we're going to go buy a house, I'm even going to put down some money. But if I move into the house before we've started paying for the house, who, who comes? The policeman comes. He says, no, you're squatting, you can't, you can't just move in. And, you know, for us, we look at this and we say, look, if I'm intending, if I'm going to receive this gift, if I'm going to be able to taste the fruit, if I'm going to have the house, what's the, what's the problem with this? You know, and I would still tell you that, you know, it doesn't feel risky to us. It feels like this is natural, this should be okay. But I would tell you, until there's a covenant, until you can say, I belong to my beloved and my beloved is mine, then you... There's a water coming over the banks. Water is overtaking the levee. You cannot control it. That's why, for many of you, if you have been in a relationship with someone else, even if you intend on marrying this person, and you've taken some steps sexually, it is really hard to move backwards. It's really hard. You're like, wait, I can't make the water come back inside the dam. I can't. It's hard to make the water go back into the river. I want to keep it there. You know... Here's my call to you. Trust God. Trust God. A gift taken at the wrong time is the wrong thing. A fruit taken before it's ripe will turn the stomach. You don't know. You intend to be married, but you cannot move in the house. Do not act like it is yours. What looks like a Nerf gun can turn out to be a bazooka. And it can have long-term effects. Even if you do marry the person. The last thing is this. What's the fourth piece of this theology of sexuality we see in this book? Look at this. It's this. Our sexuality is a way that we know God. Our sexuality is a way that we know God. You know, Song of Solomon is not just inspired literature. It's actually a book of the Bible. It's a book of the Bible. And all books of the Bible, all parts of Scripture are intended to tell us what? What are they for? They tell us what God is like. This book of the Bible, no less, tells us something about what God is like and how we relate to Him. You know, our sexuality is a way that we know God. It's like a sign. You know, you would think someone was an idiot if they walk out by the road and they're standing there looking at a one-way sign. And they're staring at it. A sign is meant to point you somewhere else. You're supposed to look alongside the sign at something else. It's one of the dangers of doing a sermon series, a short sermon series on sexuality. Because we could just sit there and stare at sex. And I'm, you know, the Bible shows us, no, your sexuality is actually meant to be a sign. It's actually meant to point to something, a greater reality. Something that's much larger than just that as an end in itself. And it's meant to show us this. Our sexuality is a way that we are supposed to know God more fully. John Piper writes this. He says, The ultimate reason we are sexual... Listen to these words. The ultimate reason you are sexual is to make God more knowable. God created us with sexual passion so that there would be language to describe what it means to cleave to Him in love and to turn away from others. 
God made us powerfully sexual so that He would be more deeply knowable. We were given the power to know each other sexually so that we might have some hint, some hint of what it would be like to know Christ supremely. God designed us in His image, male and female, with personhood and sexual passions so that when He comes into the world, there would be these powerful words, these powerful images to describe the promises and pleasures of a covenant relationship with Him in Christ. This is why this book is not just for married people. Right? This book is a book for all people. Married, single, chaste, people who are struggling. This is a book for all of us. It tells us there are beautiful pictures and words that describe this kind of intimacy that we can have with God that actually are pointers. They're signs. And therefore, I don't want you just to go home and read this tonight and go like, wow, what a beautiful sign. It's meant to point you somewhere. It's meant to point you to who God is, what He's about. Look, I've just brushed the surface of this sermon series to like give you a picture, to, to kind of raise some issues. I know that I've raised some things within your own hearts that need and will be addressed over the next few weeks. I want to tell you a few words of, of encouragement by way of closing. These things. Listen, maybe you've been foolish. You know, maybe you've treated your sexuality as something that's distinct from your soul. Maybe you've you've given yourself away. Maybe you've been abused by other people. You know, one of my longings for you as we look at this is to say, I need to grow. I need to grow in understanding the fullness of what God says. So I might live within what He's called me to. You know, some of us have been very naive. I want you to know God as the giver of joy. Second is this. You know, I know that this sermon series is going to expose some old wounds. For some of you, it's like I stood up this morning and I just ripped off this bandage that you've tried to very carefully dress regularly. And there are sexual wounds that you are still deeply hurt by on a daily basis. You know, one of the reasons we're talking about this is that we might be a community that experiences God's healing. And I know that this may be painful for you. But my encouragement is that the Holy Spirit is bigger than our sin and bigger than our pain. And that He longs to bring healing on the hurt places within your own soul. That's why we're talking about this. The last is this. This is a series for us as a community. This is a series for us as a community. One way that sin and shame work in your life is by secrets. You know, you take something and you hide it deeply within a closet in your soul and you put chains around it and you lock it up and you're like, I never want to see that again. I don't want anybody to know about that. And it has power in your life. Jesus says, you know, look, when my light comes in and shines in dark places, there is healing. And one of the things that our longing is for our community as we talk about these things together is that the light would begin to shine in dark places. And we'd be a community that can confess sin to each other that can bear each other's burdens, that can help each other in our weakness, that can help each other find healing. You know, Jesus is big for this. And we need Him to be able to talk about these things as a community together. Let's pray for His help. Would you pray with me? Holy Father, we thank You for the beauty and the fullness of the theology that You've given us of sexuality. And yet we come to you and we tell you that we're like those who are lepers 
or wounded as we walk into the sermon series. And we need your Holy Spirit's power. We need confidence to know that you not only created sex for good, but you are working for our good, even in bringing this into our lives and into this into our conversation at this moment. We pray, Lord, for your Holy Spirit to work powerfully within our church. We pray that there would be deeper repentance over sin. We pray that there would be a commitment, Lord, to live according to your word. We pray that there would be deep forgiveness. We pray, Lord, that where there are wounds, they would be healed. Lord, where where there's been secret and alienation and separation, there would be wholeness and unity. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.